Greetings from the American Exception Podcast. I'm Aaron Good, and today I am excited to be joined by Gerard Colby and Charlotte Dennett. They are the authors of Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. Charlotte is also the author of Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, a book we plan to discuss in a future episode. Gerard Colby is also the author of DuPont Behind the Nylon Curtain, and I would like to be able to do an episode on this book at some point also. Uh, for today, I am just very happy to be talking with them about Thy Will Be Done, an epic work with implications that go well beyond the powerful man at the center of the story, the governor, vice president, and oligarch, Nelson Rockefeller. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And Charlotte Dennett, it's also great to have you with us here today. Oh, this is going to be fun. I have your, your book here, and I read part of it many years ago, uh, and then I, I reread the whole thing recently, and the book is called Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. I normally might say that you have too many subtitles. But in this case, and given the, 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 the magnitude of this book, I think it's, it's, that's, a good, that's a, good, a good title. So I have to ask, how did you undertake such a, a massive project? Because this book is really monumental in scope. And how did, it, how did this get written? Well, it started with an um, investigation that was funded by the National Council of Churches and others. Um, a, an Amazon trip to look into the charges made against the Summer Institute of Linguistics, as it was called in those days, uh, and also had a more American evangelical name called the Wy Wycliffe Bible Translators. Um, this organization was founded by what evangelicals called uh, the St. Paul of their movement which was William Cameron Townsend. He um, was dedicated to bilingual education of the Indian peoples, and actually his mission was to uh, speed up, you might say, the second coming of the Lord by reaching Bibleist tribes. He thought there were only about 2,000 tongues, as he called them, uh, that hadn't been, but actually... Um, he had more than that in Latin America and Southeast Asia, even then. So he uh, never reached them all. The second coming never came. Um, but uh, we went down to investigate the charges that were being made that they had collaborated with the CIA uh, at a time when the Indians of the Amazon were being eliminated, you might say. Um Villages were burned, uh, pistoleros, which is Brazilian for hard guns, uh, were sent in to kill Indians uh, to make way for rubber trappers, rubber companies, uh, to make way for um, the whole 
project of Amazonian development. Um, so that's how it started. We uh, traced, we visited throughout the Amazon basin, at least the countries where SIL was in. Um, uh, we uh, traveled through uh, South America, visiting all their jungle bases, as they were called. Um, they had a string of them across the Amazon, not just Brazil. And um, we knew we would have to travel to many countries. Most of these countries at that time were under military dictatorships. So we had to be very careful. You know, we were investigative journalists. You know, we knew what the, what the rules were. And one of them was not to... Um, um, not to go in uh, and uh, register with the U.S. Embassy because these are allies of the U.S. Embassy and we didn't know what the covert operations uh, were at that time. We didn't know what the uh, embassy personnel were. We knew there were station chiefs of the CIA. Uh, so our goal was to uh, just get the information and get out. I was just going to give a little bit more of a backdrop of how we got involved, which was that Jerry had run into a photographer uh, at the United Nations when he was doing stories, and and he had he he was from Argentina. Have I got that right, Jerry? Yeah, he was doing stories at the UN, which was one of yeah, my beats. And, and he he and his he and his wife and another couple were in the Amazon. And all of us, they were by a river, and all of a sudden, this plane descends into the into the area, and this guy comes out with a suit on. He's we wearing Western clothes, and everyone was surprised. And and uh, the the photographer and his fellow journalist said, "Well, who are you?" And this man dressed in Western clothes, obviously an American, says, "Well, who are you?" And what turned out is. He was with the Summer Institute of Linguistics, and he introduced himself, and then he took them on a tour, uh, if I'm right, Jerry. Uh, they they be showing the, the installations of uh, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, including radio towers, and um, obviously they had these airplanes, which are, are short takeoff and landing airplanes that had been developed used a lot by the CIA, and um, so gave them a royal tour. And then when the, this couple came back to the United States, they did a little bit more research, and that's when they found out that the Summer Institute of Linguistics was being uh, studied by anthropologists and others as having a relationship possibly with the CIA. And the reason why this would have been a valid area of uh, inquiry is because uh, we had become aware that the CIA used missionaries a lot in Vietnam. So the charge that this group of missionaries would also be used by the CIA was something that really interested us and made us feel like it was our duty as Americans to see why missionaries possibly funded by the CIA were turning a blind eye to the genocide of Indians in the Amazon. So that's a little bit more of a backdrop. So how does this go from being a project connected to um, the to research into the Summer Institute of Linguistics uh, in the Amazon 
to a focus on Nelson there. Rockefeller because it, it seems like that wasn't the initial uh, the, the initial uh, you know assignment that you had accepted, but then it ends up he, he ends up being squarely in the center of all of this. How did that How did that happen? Well, it turned out that um, uh, we knew that the Indians were being displaced. Uh, and being herded really into um, containment areas, you might call them, um, by the, the local governments that um, also uh, we found out that uh, while we were in the Amazon, we had been um, uh, visiting an anthropologist who actually had a copy of Philip Agee's book, uh, into the company. But the most important piece of that book, in my view, was in the back, which he listed all the individuals that were involved. And one of them was a man by the name of J.C. King, who was chief of clandestine services for the Western Hemisphere, so for the CIA. So that interests us right away, and uh, we decided... Uh, also to investigate why the, um, which confused us, why the uh, companies that were benefiting by the Indian displacement, American companies were companies based in the Northeast, mostly in the Northeast, and not in the evangelical kind of territories that you would expect. So we were, um, we went back, explained our problem with our then literary agent. And he said, and one of the chief people connected with J.C. King um, that we were cu curious about was um, Adolf Burrow. Adolf Burrow headed up, he was America, head of the American Liberty, uh, Liberal Party. But more importantly, Adolf, he was former assistant secretary of state for Latin America and had been actually a protege. Um, well, actually, Nelson was his protege. When Nelson stepped down for that position, um, he uh, uh, had been the predecessor, and uh, we thought there might be a connection here. So we uh, mentioned that to our literary agencies, you're in luck. You're in luck because uh, all of Adolf Burrell's papers have been declassified and are sitting in the Franklin uh, in the um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Library. So up we went, expecting uh, to spend maybe um, I don't know, you know, a week or so doing that research, and we found and said he had over 400 volumes of documents which required us to settle down because we found right away that he was a advisor to Nelson and uh, trained Nelson to a certain extent and, uh, uh, and of course, worked with him in World War II. Uh, then we, um, uh, we, were, we were very... We, we spent a long time, I think six months, going through those, all those papers 
And finally, um, we found a lot of connections with Nelson and course also, interesting enough, J.C. King, because Burl had headed up this is human ecology society, um, and had, which had received CIA funds. Um, and that Nelson, when he was... Yeah, the human ecology um, society under, was notorious for being MKUltra related. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're right. going to get to that. So I, I'm sorry if I stole your thunder, but I just want to... Yeah, it's, it, it, it was quite an organization and uh, it funded uh, also research into American people, including prisoners out in, in, in jails. Um, to engage in psychological um, studies, and to also that included drugs, uh, including um, uh, LSD, but more importantly, for our perspective, um, uh, American curare, uh, which is drawn from the Amazon, um, sometimes used for heart treatments. Uh, but they were looking for something else. They were looking for a Manchester uh, uh, candidate, someone who could be programmed. And the whole story is, by the way, is in a book. Uh, it's in our book, but it's also in another book written by a former State Department uh, individual, John Marks, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. So... Along, we spent those six months and we discovered that Nelson had many, many connections to the uh, World War II. He set up the CIAA, um, the cent, uh, which was uh, coordinator. not the CIA's <laughs> coordinator. Excuse for me. He was coordinator of inter-American affairs. Right. That's right. And the office was called the Office of Coordinator Inter-American Affairs, CIAA. Uh, this engaged in huge amounts of intelligence. It was supposedly engaged in for aid programs to try to win over the South Americans away from the Italians, the fascist Italians, and the fascist Germans, and even the Japanese who were investing in the West Coast. And so the um, first thing was to analyze how many resources were affected by uh, um, in by in South America, how many resources there were in South America. So he did a huge amount of work on that, and produced a report on that, and that gave him the okay to go down and take more a closer look. Um, in so doing, uh, particularly rubber development, as you remember, the Japanese had seized the rubber and tin uh, in Southeast Asia, and the Americans were desperate for more rubber. And so the Rubber Development Corporation um, was involved in this as well. Um, they went down into the, they checked out the Amazon. Uh, what they needed was a survey. And who did Nelson turn to for that? But the vice president of Johnson & Johnson, based in um, Brazil and Argentina, this is a man that knew Perón in Argentina, um, and I'll get to that later when he became later, well, he became later a military attache there at Nelson's behest. General Strong appointed him there. But more importantly now is that 
he was the first he did the first comprehensive survey of the Amazon for Nelson CIAA. And um, he, he went down there and he found a valley of death, you might was what he called it, um, where the Indians were being enslaved, being used as laborers to gather the rubber and to tell them where the rubber was. Um, they had different individual scientists from uh, Harvard that were, had participated in the Rubber Development Corporation, including um, Dr. Schultes, uh, uh, who was a uh, out of Harvard. Um, he worked with, with um, very famous uh, uh, plant ecologists, by the way, and who uh, worked not only with Nelson, but worked with J.C. King. J. Nelson came, uh, King came back and reported to Nelson that the riches of the Amazon were beyond belief. And the Amazon, as you know, is a country, is a, is a huge belt of um, unresourced, uh, unrediscovered resources in South America, covering many countries, Brazil being the largest. Um, and in that context, um, they decided that the Amazon development was going to be this used by the Amazon Nelson's Amazon Development Corporation, which was his advice, uh, his device to try to set up uh, this huge corporation. He had a hundred million dollars backing him uh, for support for Brazil and some other countries in aid. So that was a good lever for him to try to get into Brazil. The only trouble is that the government of, of Vargas, Getulio Vargas, uh, who was president of Brazil, wanted to go in there as well and develop it. Um, so there was a conflict and Brazil refused the Amazon Development Corporation to come in. Well, the rubber company became a good ploy and uh, J.C. King uh, said, "Why, you know, I know where all the Amazon. I've been there for many years. Um, we take medicinal plants out of there. Um, I'm willing to go in and um, do some more work for you, Nelson." And Nelson said, "Yeah, great." He got permission from General Strong, by the way, which is the the big man in, in military intelligence at the time. So um, that's where that connection came in. In the course of doing so, Nelson uh, also had to deal with the Summer Institute of Linguistics, not only during World War II, but after the war, when Nelson was no longer assistant secretary, um, he, Nelson went into private enterprises. Now, that's the key. Nelson Rockefeller was the major AID, well, what was AID? It was International Development Advisory Board of the Truman. Nelson was chair of that, which set up the first foreign aid program. AID eventually grew out of that. Um, with that kind of a situation, he had a huge amounts of lever to enter into agreements, and including SIL sort of to uh, do some work for 
the Yale uh, research uh, program, um, which was unknown to probably Townsend, uh, was uh, cooperating with intelligence gathering on the Indians and on their resources. All of this information about Nelson um, as coordinator of inter-American affairs, we discovered was sitting in the National Archives. There was a, there's a whole section on that. And so we also spent months uh, in the National Archives going through uh, Nelson's reports. And so that gave us um, much greater insight into his activities during this period. And, uh, you know, for us, it was eye-opening, as it would be for any reader, because who knew that Nelson Rockefeller had all these dealings in Latin America? Uh, most people remember Nelson by the way he uh, died. That's what everyone rem remembers, and the fact that he was governor of New York. But I would dare say that very few people understood that, that he used this position as coordinator to make connections with the militaries, with the anthropologists, with the scientists, with the health workers, because the, the uh, coordinator's position, it had all sorts of disciplines. And so he had this army of people going in there making the connections. So after the war, he was able to capitalize on these connections uh, when, when he went private, so to speak. So that's that's that entry point into Latin America. There's a key point. There's a key point here. There also, is he developed relationships with people that would eventually become presidents of different countries, like Eros Camago, uh, in uh, I think that was Colombia. Um, um, various kind of, uh, presidents, and they're and they're and they're all documented in the book anyway he uh, after the war was over and Townsend wanted to go into the Amazon as well uh, for, evang for evangelizing purposes that's exactly right so uh, he became very big uh, to the, and as a known especially after the murder of his uh, one of his stars two, two uh, pilots um, of that were associated with him and with uh, the evangelical movement had tried to reach the Alca tribe in Ecuador and were murdered by the Indians. And uh, that became a great cause celeb, not only among evangelicals, but actually in the news. Uh, so much so that her, the bro the sister of the man who was uh, the pilot who had, had been murdered um, took up the cause of the Alcas and made the connections, uh, recruited one of the Alcas to be a translator, which was very common in what they did, how they did this, to translate the Bible into the local language and at the same time the Indian language and at the same time teach Spanish so they could then get a bilingual education contract with the Peruvian um, and Ecuadorian governments, which they did. And they did this consistently throughout not only Latin America, but throughout uh, a good part of the uh, Southeast Asia. Um, they even tried to get into Russia. They didn't succeed. 
um, but in Africa, and it became a worldwide organization. And they were collecting money from people like um, H.L. Hunt uh, and others uh, of the far right that were involved with the evangelical movement. We're seeing the result, by the way, right now of that connection. Yeah. Yeah, that, that to me is the is something – the way that this relates to the present is uh, – it's, it's really powerful and a, a disturbing. I mean these missionaries go into these areas. I mean this is, this is like a similar thing to like – I mean if you, in a way to the, like the conquistadors. They would go out – the conquistadors are more blunt, but they were saying, oh, we're here to Christianize. We're here to Christianize these poor people. And then, of course, they come back with so much gold that, that their ships almost sink under the weight of it. And I mean, it, it's of course, it's not as straightforward what the Rockefellers and the Summer Institute for Linguistics are, are doing in, in tandem with the CIA. But it's just this idea of sending these people out there with a supposedly salvation mission is uh, it, when you're really just interested in robbing them, plundering their, the places where they live. It, it's it, it's the similarities over hundreds of years are are stark, and it's just it's kind of staggering to think about. Well, the, the thing to remember is that the missionary missionaries that went with the uh, Spanish conquistadors actually tried originally just to protect the Indians. The uh, evangelicals of the Wycliffe Bible translators did the same. They were not actually when we went down there and started to talk to missionaries who were in the field in the Amazon, we discovered that uh, they were really quite innocent. Most of them didn't understand at all what was happening or even what their leadership was engaged in behind the scenes. Uh, for instance, in Brazil, uh, when we um, took a recording of uh, a recorded interview with uh, William Cameron Townsend before he died, Townsend claimed he had uh, no connection with Brazil. He couldn't. He couldn't remember anything like that. He remembered everything else, but Brazil. He couldn't. He didn't. He claimed he didn't have any any connection. We found out after he died, we got access to his archives. That he was involved directly in the negotiations for all the Brazilian. Um, jungle camps, jungle training camps, jungle, whatever they had down there. Um, and he knew exactly where the Indians were. As a matter of fact, one of his connections, one of the men that did the work for him was Dale Keitzman, who wrote a book and who, where he identified where the so-called hostile Indians were. Hostile because people were encroaching on their lands and were killing their people. Um, just exactly the kind of term that was used in the American West as as the Americans pushed into the West. A lot of similarities. There are a lot of people that came out of the uh, that whole experience in the American West and moved on, followed American conquests in Cuba, Philippines, and Wycliffe came on later then uh, and and became quite successful. Um, Nelson also had an amazing program with, of radio communications throughout South America. Uh, he had, uh, 
So it was not only gathering intelligence, it was gathering psychological uh, aspects, radio propaganda and so on. So much so that uh, he had a little problem with the evangelicals because the evangelicals did not trust the Rockefellers. As a matter of fact, they had been fighting the Rockefellers throughout the 19th Right, this goes way back to, as you said, the eighteen hundreds. The fundamentalist controversy of the nineteen twenties, when they uh, uh, the Rockefellers were called the Great Octopus, the Great Monster, and they were uh, uh, because the Rockefellers were funding through the the various foundations they had um, uh, penetration of the South, part of the effort on the part of the northern industrialists after war, after the Civil War to invest in the South, uh, and the Rockefellers were among them. And um, in the course of doing so, they attacked uh, the old kind of religion um, medicine that they that were dominated by the evangelicals. And with this, they, uh, they uh, had the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission which found that hookworm was the major cause of laziness, so to speak, in the South, uh, which made a great impact on the on the Indian on the um, excuse me the Southerners. They were therefore cured, and they were promptly put to work by companies um, in collecting cotton, uh, and companies like the Virginia Carolina Chemical Company, which the Rockefellers are heavily invested in. Uh, the introduction of modern machinery into by the International Harvester Company, which the Rockefellers were invested in. Um, and you go down the list, it's all in the book, and that was the origin of their of the evangelicals' hatred, uh, which had not just an, a, uh, a religious or theological uh, dispute, but had also um, a... Tangible uh, investments of cor by corporations in the in the South that undermine the authority of the old religions. Also, there are schools that that were religious based. So here, are these godless communists coming in and pushing uh, their ideas. Obviously, this resonates, right? I even think now, today, with all the talk about the evangelicals, people don't understand this background and where this deep resentment of the Eastern establishment comes from. But, you know, the, the, uh, one of the things that Wycliffe, I mean, this SIL did that was very sophisticated, um, William C Cameron Townsend saw opportunities uh, of working with uh, the Eastern establishment, so to speak, some of their best anthropologists. And um, because the, the problem for the evangelicals was that most of Latin America was Catholic. So how were they going to get in there and convince local leaders that they were doing good things for the people? And what they developed was this very scientific-sounding organization. They didn't go in as Wycliffe Bible translators. They went in as the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And the whole idea was to teach the indigenous people how to read and write in their own languages. And then once they learned that, 
they would also learn Spanish and could be better integrated into the, the given country where they were operating in. And so oh, this Portuguese appealed, in the case of Brazil. And Portuguese, yeah. right. And so this appealed to the, uh, the local presidents of the different countries because they desperately wanted the Amazon to be developed. They were particularly, well, they were particularly interested in the oil. But also, as Jerry has mentioned, ro uh, um, rubber and ranching and other mining activities. But in order to do that, they had to deal with the hostiles. So what we discovered was a phenomenon also of a replica of the conquest of the American West. First, you send in, you send in the scouts, and, and those would have been, well, the, the, the spies, but then you send in the missionaries and they pacify the Indians. So that was what ended up happening in, in Latin America. And the uh, missionaries go in there with this, this good work. Uh, and, and what they actually did was to end up uh, dividing communities because there were those indigenous leaders that welcomed them and there were those indigenous leaders that distrusted, distrusted them because the, uh, the ones that worked with the evangelicals ended up having little small uh, agricultural businesses and they became more powerful. That was one of the dynamics we learned and it was something that, that uh, alarmed uh, anthropologists, for instance. There, there was this friction between anthropologists and, and the missionaries that we discovered that was quite interesting. And there was a period in time when the anthropologists were able to speak out at what was called the Barbados Conference uh, denouncing what these evangelicals around were. 1972. Yeah, and sure, surely we went down there in 76. So, you know, and we met with some of them too. So they were very concerned about the, the power that these evangelicals had. And one of the things that we learned in the course of our investigation was um, that, that the evangelicals were, were being supported by these uh, Catholic uh, countries, and they were gaining power. And, and ultimately, we came back from our trip and we started warning people that the evangelical movement was growing in power. No, we also warned them that they were being politicized. Yeah. They were clearly in getting more and more involved in, in politics. Interesting enough, they thought Jimmy Carter was going to be a supporter because he claimed to be a born-again Christian. He didn't turn out to be that way, and they were very disappointed. And when we got to them, they were they were uh, very confused in '76 about what was going on. By the way, I should also point out that in terms of the American West, the Rockefellers sponsored Rockefeller Hall, which was a major um, uh, hall uh, gathering educational operation. Um, for not only and and the Rockefellers were getting um, even for Indians and the they were also getting they were working with the BIA the Bureau of Indian Affairs they continued to work with the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, through Rockefeller in World War II Charles Collier was the son of John Collier who who really founded the BIA um, because he wanted to clean up the operations that were going on the the abuses uh, that were attended with uh, with Indian affairs 
did a very good job. John Collier is a great man, great, great un, unrecognized hero of human rights. His son, John Collier, worked with Nelson um, to try to protect the Indians in the American Amazon. Uh, but he didn't get anywhere um, because what was really important to Nelson was delivering the rubber for the oil, uh, rubber uh, for World War II. But after the war, they continued to work with the BIA. Rockefellers did. Rockefeller opened up a lot of operations. He owned his own ranch. He had the largest ranch in, in Brazil, by the way, over a million acres of land. Um, uh, he had the uh, Fazenda Botacania, it was called. He actually had a ranch in Venezuela that some of the family members would go down and participate in, uh, riding horses and so on. Um, Nelson's operation was uh, also involved in developing supermarkets um, to replace the local village markets. He had uh, developed Cotacinco. Uh, Cotacinco uh, was a, uh, um, an investment firm. He believed that Latin American elites could invest in uh, Brazilian companies and, and set up stock exchanges, and it became the largest in Latin America. So he's he's bringing the whole kit and boodle of uh, of capital. And the elites were joining on, including the former presidents. I'm not a scholar of the religious history of the United States, but of course it gets into politics in mm -hmm. the United States. And it seems like with the, among more fundamentalist Protestantism in the, in the U.S., I mean, you, you have fundamentalists more broadly speaking, and then you have these evangelicals that we're talking about, which you could maybe, which are sometimes synonymous and, and so on. But it's like the, there was also an opposition to like Rockefeller in the, and it was fundamentalist, but it wasn't just like the Southern evangelicals, people like William Jennings Bryan and others who were of the, in this populist movement that was religiously fundamentalist and yet also really largely on the political left. Um, how did these uh, intersect with the evangelicals who eventually become – because some of these people think Rockefeller is a communist – and that's a different kind of like fundamentalist opposition to Rockefeller than like William Jennings Bryan, who I don't I don't think William Jennings Bryan and the populists and people of that ilk thought they were communists, like they had a different critique of them, but they were against them. I mean, how does this how did this evolve? How did the religious fundamentalism evolve from being somewhat um, based on material you know, interests of these groups that were getting dominated and, and screwed and exploited by Rockefeller and other sort of Gilded Age robber yeah. baron types. Uh, how did it eventually become so uh, re fully reactionary and, and eventually lose the kind of economic well, populism? Well, William Cameron Townsend was never fully reactionary. Um, that was the unique part of him. He was willing to learn uh, from Boaz, uh, for instance, in anthropology uh, or linguistics, um, he 
really adopted many of the uh, Rockefeller Foundation programs. He, for instance, um, was involved in the hookworm eradication program in Peru, which made him a great success. Um, uh, He was one of the few evangelicals that did never engage in calling him a communist, calling Nelson a communist or any Rockefellers a communist. He wanted to learn from them and use use their technique as much as possible. He's very successful in that. He adopted what the Rockefellers call the modernist approach. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, the even most of the evangelicals were totally opposed to modernism because it represented the Eastern establishment. But the, uh, that's not the case with uh, uh, Nelson. Nelson was willing to make friends with anybody, including even the president of, Peru, of Mexico that had nationalized Standard Oil, um, in this case, Cardenas. Um, so that was one of the unique parts of, uh, of, of, the, of William Cameron Townsend. The other, the other part to remember is that the Rockefellers um, themselves, um, there were five of them, and each one took a part of the world. David took banking. Lawrence took uh, underneath Nelson, you might say, as as Nelson's protege, investments in the military-industrial complex. Um, uh, John took on the Rockefeller Foundation. And all of them, by the way, were tied together uh, as a force whose money speaks. Uh, They developed the Rice Research Institute in the Philippines while Nelson was quietly supporting the whole campaign against against the uh, communist insurrection there, against the The, the Hux, Hux, right? That's right. And he supported Max Heisei who eventually defeated them with help of the United States. Max Sese, uh became even a head of, uh, of a Rockefeller Foundation and was involved with the Rice Institute. Some people believe Max Sese was actually killed eventually, perhaps, by the CIA, that he died in a plane crash that was kind of uh, suspicious. Yeah, well, they, they said that about, a lot, and it may be true, but they say that a lot about a lot of people that were died in plane crashes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they said it's about, about the president of uh, uh, Panama as well. Um, Ecuador, Ecuador too, right? Jaime Roldos? Um, yes. Uh, but the the thing I, I, I emphasize is to get beyond the individual crimes and look at the pattern. Yeah. Uh, and the pattern is that what America learned, not America, but I would say, the American elite learned in the conquest of the West that made them so powerful, extracting gold in the Black Hills, uh, where Custer went through and found gold up to his ankle, he said, uh, just uh, in about a year before he was killed, trying to get <laughs> to the Black Hills. I mean, that's that's what, what the whole the whole issue was there. He was in touch with... Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the the the, the philanthropists, uh, so-called. Uh, uh, oh God, name escapes me right now. But he was out of Philadelphia. 
uh, at any rate, Carnegie maybe or no, no, Carnegie's no, no, in uh, Pittsburgh, um, but uh, but it was Belmont, Belmont, Belmont Raceway is named after him, <laughs> and Belmont himself was a uh, was oh, and by the way, the the Indian the information they got from the Indians uh, from missions um, that were funded by the Rockefellers, and they were funded by the Rockefellers. Um, was reported back to the Rockefellers. So they would know, for instance, where the silver was in Nevada. Uh, they would know where uh, 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 oil was in Oklahoma. They would know where gold was in, in, the, in the Black Hills. And um, this is a pattern that we see repeated. After all, if it's successful for you, in the it'll be successful in the Amazon too, you, they hoped. So yeah, that that to me I think is a key takeaway from this this book, and it's of course I'm I'm well aware of all of the U.S. Uh, neo-colonialism and plunder of the former Third World, you know, in the years after World War II, but we sometimes think of the uh, genocide of the American Indians as a kind of inevitable sad tragedy that we uh, undertook because uh, we were just not as enlightened as we are later. But then you see this in the 20th century and it's really the exact same mentality and often the same tactics used for the same motivations, which is to take that which is good to take uh, to where you can't you can't really make such a clean break from from the the past. I don't think that we've really, I don't think we can feel proud about having left that behind at all. It's just, it's carried out more subtly, and it's mostly outside of our borders now because you know that's it. That's the nature of imperialism. But your book say, really documents this really well. I think it's also happening inside the United States. We used this. I just had a discussion with a, a friend of mine who is going into real estate. And he's doing this, he's making the same arguments, capitalism is inevitable, to the black community that he's that will essentially be destroyed because he's, he's being used as a stalking horse by the billionaires that he's met. They're all encouraging his investment um, and in redeveloping houses in a black community that would be sold for a million bucks. Yeah. You know, or two hundred fifty thousand. Who could afford that? Oh well, we set up workshops. The Indian, but they don't want. No one wanted to come. Yeah, this is the kind of mentality. The same line. It's inevitable. You get out of get out of get out of my way. Essentially, is what he's saying. Yeah, I never thought he would go that way, but he's caught the capitalist fever. He can make money, and it's really, really sad to see. But it's an ongoing process of capitalism not just the individuals involved. Right. If it wasn't him, it'd be somebody else. Uh, well, maybe, but I frankly, the black community had held, had held them off and they're still struggling. This is Newberg, by the way. Okay. Our book has been considered, has been called an anatomy of conquest. And that's really what it is because we start in Latin America, but then we take it and, and we take it abroad by following the missionaries. So we take it to Vietnam, we take it to the Philippines, we take it to Africa. And it is uh, pretty much the same tried and true process of uh, scouting, 
for riches, seeing who they can use to get it, uh, starts with the indigenous people. You got to pacify the hostiles, uh, and then you develop your your connections. Um, uh, Nelson Rockefeller learned a lot from India. Uh, he learned about indirect rule, which is opposed to the colon uh, the British colonial approach, which was more heavy heavy handed uh, in controlling populations. And instead, they work with indirect rule, which is, you know, cozying up to certain uh, leaders that they felt were malleable that they could work with to achieve their objectives. And it's still going on. And, of course, one of the fundamental tenets of, of capitalism is that it, it has to constantly expand. It has to find new markets. And the reason for that is because if you don't expand, then you're, go you're going to be outcompeted by more powerful forces. So this dynamic is just going on and on and on. And it, I, I find it particularly uh, alarming when it has to do with oil. Uh, you know, the idea that if we don't get if we don't get those resources first, someone else is going to get them. And uh, that was one of the whole reasons we learned why why the U.S. concentrated on the Middle East after World War II. After all, the U.S. had plenty of oil. And it started capping the uh, oil wells of Latin America uh, and then focused on penetrating the Middle East. And so some people ask, well, why the Middle East? And all you have to do is look at a map and you find out that the, the giant bear, the Soviet Union, is sitting, you know, very close to those oil fields. And so the, the, the point is to to influence as many countries as you can to, to, to grab their oil and control it so the Soviets don't get it. And that's still going on today. Yeah, it's Russia uh, as opposed to... Now it's Russia. Yeah. Now it's Russia. Yeah. Yeah, well, and we're going to get... We have a follow-up plan to talk about follow the pipelines that we will get into more of the oil trade uh, and it's it's impact. And uh, I'm, you're one of the few people that have written much on this subject. And uh, I've done a, a little bit of work on it. I'm familiar with the geopolitics and, and read a lot of the authors that you cite also. But getting back to, to Nelson, in the, I don't want we don't need to go into too much detail here. But under Eisenhower, uh, because we're, we don't have we don't want to go on forever. And people should read the book because there's a lot more in this. But in the 50s, after using his position in World War II, uh, partly to, you know, he was one of those dollar-a-year men who would work for very little money, but he was scheming and finding out all of these, discovering all these resources and so on in Latin America and making, doing all of this networking to allow him to, you know, find ways to make more money later, set up this business empire. But he also did sort of have, you know, political ambitions. He wanted to go into politics, which may not have been the best move ultimately for Rockefellers, but it seems to be a part of his megalomania. In the 1950s, he is working with Eisenhower, and he's part of this Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. And this is, a, I think, a crucial stage of the American empire, kind of a germinal stage where the secret government really kind of metastasizes. And he was there. I mean, the Rockefellers were there at the creation of the national security state and the planning for the American empire. It was the Council on Foreign Relations that planned most of this under Roosevelt. Uh, under which was David Rockefeller ran it, and Alan Dulles was like one of the main people drafting all these plans before the U.S. even enters the war. And in the 1950s, Nelson is there, 
on this board advising on covert operations, along with people like Charles Dillon, who's from that Dillon Reed investment bank banking family, these rich oligarchs, and they're the ones who are directing the clandestine uh, violence of the American empire that's supposedly this democracy and world leadership for, and freedom and all this. But it's these oligarchs who are advising the president and in control of this apparatus. Uh, and yet, and this leads to the Kennedy administration, which you all point out, and I mentioned this earlier in a, in a series that we're doing related to my own book. I actually cite your work extensively. The, JF, the Kennedy administration was kind of schizophrenic in a sense because a lot of its uh, a lot of the personnel were rock, were connected to Rockefeller. It's almost like a shadow Rockefeller government. Um, how how did you, how did this how was this set up? How was Rockefeller able to do this? And what do you think the consequences were for Kennedy? Well, the origins go back to the uh, when Nelson was President Eisenhower's uh, special assistant for psychological warfare and Cold War strategy. Now, if you know anything about the CIA, you, you know that the CIA's major weapon is propaganda. Not so much intervention. If they can get away with the propaganda, they will. That's what caused the Guatemalan government to fall uh, in 1954. Um, it wasn't a CIA invasion. It was an invasion that the CIA financed from Hon Honduras, but it was a... a and it, it really wasn't. It was a ragtag army. It could have been easily crushed. But what they, what the CIA did was run over planes with loudspeakers and, um, and develop a uh, fear that the bombing that took place um, there was uh, uh, a harbinger of, the, of a much worse future. So Oswald, uh, uh, the, gov the government fell. They were happy that they started to slaughter the the communists. I mean, slaughter them. Yeah. Not only not just communists, but also the labor movement itself. Just peasants, just Mayan, eventually just Mayan peasants. Yeah, yeah, and they they did this constantly because Nelson made a shift when he was heading that operation. He, by the way, not only knew about all the covert operations, um, and but he was chair of the special group. That um, was the subject, by the way, of some investigation by L. Fletcher Prouty, a lieutenant colonel of the Air Force who was a liaison between the, C the CIA and the Air Force uh, during the Kennedy administration and talks about, in his book, The Secret Team, managing that whole operation. Um, and, of course, the chair of the secret team was Nelson, up until he finally left the administration and started to prepare with the Rockefeller Brothers report on South America, uh, on the world, um, a um, uh, preparation for 1960 for the, for the campaign. So the report came out in 59. Uh, Nelson tried very hard to get the presidential nomination, but the South and the Midwest was very suspicious. Republicans were very suspicious of Rockefeller because of his power. His power scared him, and his tentacles go and went everywhere. It seems so. They, so they, they elected 
to nominate uh, Goldwater. Uh, it was a big fight inside the Republican campaign, the Cow Palace in San Francisco. It was televised. Nelson got the reputation that, that he always had of being a liberal. He was liberal on his domestic policies until, until Attica. He was very uh, uh, different on foreign policy, which most Americans are ignorant of, because their their news about what's really happening is blocked from them. So um, Nixon, and by the way, Nixon the, the, the Nixon that beats him in nineteen sixty, or that's able to get the, the the nomination in nineteen sixty, and then Nelson apparently, I mean, this is partly Kennedy stumbles into this, but Kennedy ends up putting lots of rock. I mean, he calls up was it Walter Bettel Smith. Walter Beetle Smith, yep. and he calls him up and asks for some recommendations, and then Beetle Smith basically gives him a roster of Rockefeller people, and for whatever reason, Kennedy goes along. Uh, with but it. the key thing with Kennedy was not so much Beetle Smith; it was Robert Lovett. Yeah, Lovett. I think Robert, that, that's the right. That's right. Yeah, Robert Lovett was a uh, member of the board of uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. He was a man with long Rockefeller ties. He was also an, an Air Force expert in World War II. He ended up giving the advice uh, to JFK, who came to him asking for advice because he was an eldest, considered an elder statesman. Um, I think the appointments were pretty much disastrous, um, including a, uh, a <laughs> including McNamara, who was made def defense secretary, who by 1964, uh, to five, knew we could not win. He admitted he we could not win in Vietnam. Um, it kind of dovetailed with, with JFK's position that if a country is not willing to stand up and fight for a government, and the, after all, the government Saigon was created by the CIA and out of a coup that killed the, the president at the time, Diem, uh, under JFK, which JFK was, by, by the way, very surprised about the killing and everybody around the national security council said, what do you expect? <laughs> so, um, the, uh, Nelson's, uh, move then moved cause it was to the right. Uh, we can see that in his domestic policies with Attica, uh, the prison when he was governor, when he slaughtered a whole section of the, of Attica and 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 beat the others and um, stripped them naked. It was because Attica was in revolt. They were badly treated. He didn't give a damn about that and never went to them. Never went to the prison. Uh, and yet he's willing to to kill him if necessary to restore his quote quote unquote order. By the way, one of their demands was to be taken to a non imperialist country. That's something Nelson could never agree to. <laughs> right. Well, you know we poor, have a uh, we have a chart in the book. Um, it's called High Kennedy Appointments from the Rockefeller Network, and you yeah. look at this chart, and they're all there. Like Jerry mentioned, Robert McNamara, and you you go down and you see all of these cabinet positions being filled filled by Rockefeller people. Uh, there are about, gee, must be almost 20 of them, okay? I, I once uh, had a discussion with one of the researchers for Oliver Stone's f famous film about 
the Kennedy assassination. And I showed him the map and the researcher blanched and said, oh my God, these are the people involved in the cover-up. You know, yeah. there's a lot in our book about Kennedy. Um, we, you know, we don't broadcast, but there's a lot in there um, that gives a, a, another interpretation and a lot of it has to do with um, what Kennedy was doing in Latin America that the Nelson and David did not appreciate. One of them was doing government-to-government -government loans that was um, undercutting David Rockefeller's Chase Manhattan Bank. He, he didn't like that one little bit. And another one is that Nelson had this plan for developing the interior of Brazil. It's called the Planus Project. And it was a very big development plan. And uh, apparently Kennedy uh, wasn't going to go along with it. And I, I will always remember the day when we, we went to the Rockefeller archives a lot, by the way. And uh, I remember reading about this and going through um, the, the reports of the Planus project. And all of a sudden, there were no more reports. And this was uh, before uh, November 16th. 1963. By the way, one of the other things that happens right afterwards is the 1964 coup that overthrows the uh, president of Brazil, Goulart, who was committed to protecting the Amazon. And that's when the rape of the Amazon takes off full blast. After Kennedy's killed and after Goulart's dead, then the rape of the Amazon begins. Yeah, I found that really uh, illuminating. I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that chart. It's on page 338, and I have done this series with Ben Norton, and we talk a good bit about your book, and I actually use that chart in it in the in my little slideshow that you had. I was able to get pictures of it, and this was this was amazing, and it does build up to the coup in '64. This where it's Kennedy's policies are so schizophrenic. In, especially in Latin America and the Brazil thing, they they on the one hand seem to want to help Goulart to actually become the president and not just a figurehead, but then they're always, it seems like they are very limited in the ability to support them. And I think that this Rockefeller connection to me explains why Kennedy was this way because he had to get so much pushback when you look at how much they had invested in this and his connections to the establishment. I mean, his whole administration was kind of at war with itself, as he said later. And it's it's more famous, like Arthur Schlesinger saying, we were at war with the national security people. But I think more low-key and perhaps more fundamental, besides the generals and the spooks, who are, of course, killers and all this, but these corporate guys are the ones who are probably more decisive when it ultimately came down to it. And they're the ones that cover it up as well. It's Alsop and Acheson and Rostow, not uh, Eugene Rostow, not Walt Rostow, who are lobbying LBJ to set up this Warren Commission right away when there's no way they could have known that there wasn't a plot behind it. They were already these Eastern establishment Rockefeller connected guys covering this up. And then we get the coup in 64. I don't think Jackie once said, well, at least John, John never would have recognized the government like this. Like Kennedy didn't want to recognize the junta in uh, Dominican Republic in 1963. But uh, when he dies, of course, LBJ reverses this. I don't think Kennedy would have wanted to overthrow Galar and they wouldn't have recognized them like this, but I don't even think Kennedy had control of the CIA when he was president. 
I mean, I don't think he no, was. He would, I don't think he, he was behind that coup of Bosch or the attempts on uh, the OAS attempts on De Gaulle's life. The the Laos operation seemed to be more than he bargained for. It's just as, and it wasn't just the CIA and the military. I, I think the 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 perhaps bigger issue is these corporate guys, and they do things by word of mouth and private agreements, and uh, well, and, and so they were on. all around them. They were all around him. Uh, Kennedy was essentially a tragic figure because he was growing. He was grow He started out enamored by the um, uh, the Green Beret concept, enamored by um, uh, covert operations. Matter of fact, so was Robin. Uh, I, um, briefly, I, I I worked for for a congressman who was very close to uh, uh, to these people uh, in sixty. Eight, when we started to engage in this, the second level of Kennedy assassination. It's not Allard, I was not, in you're not Bobby talking about Kennedy. Allard Lowenstein, are you? Uh, well, I, there's a long story about Allard Lowenstein and another tragic figure, but I was in Bobby Kennedy's office when he was uh, when he died. And I can tell you that staff was incredible. They were crying all over the place, but still doing their job. I... Uh, uh, the bad thing about uh, the Rockefellers is that their influence was so pervasive in the Kennedy administration that Kennedy didn't know where to turn when he got in trouble with by these advisors. Uh, and uh, he was growing, as you saw, the Cuban Missile Crisis after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, he was um, a man calling for the end of the Cold War. Um, gave a speech at American University, very famous one, uh, to that effect. And he also called for the withdrawal of, of the first 1,000 troops out of Vietnam. That was reversed later, too, by Johnson. Um, Jacqueline is not alive now, but she always believed that LBJ was behind the assassination. I have no idea on that. But I do know that the uh, Rockefeller influence was very damaging to JFK's presidency and the great hope that he brought with him uh, that was shattered in Dallas. There's a, uh, a really interesting story about Rockefeller uh, and a being corporate, uh, corporate liberal. He was a liberal at home, as I said, but he believed in progress at home as well as abroad through corporations. That's why he's called a corporate liberal. He also could could play that game in the sense that these were corporations. Many corporations were tied to the Rockefeller interests. Uh, I'm not sure Kennedy understood that. Um, a lot of people in the uh, I think that he came that to around him. I think that he came to because there's quotes of him. There's one quote where he's talking to a friend, kind of ruefully. And somebody was saying, made some allusion to like the, how the Kennedys have lots of money. And he said, well, look at the Rockefellers. How much do they have? And they started listing some of their holdings. And he just said, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, real, that's real money. That's right. And the, uh, his, he was in a battle with them. Um, now, we forget very often who was his major political op opponent in the Republican Party in 1963. Matter of fact, who was the first announced candidate for the Republican nomination while Kennedy was still alive? 
Nelson Rockefeller. So these were big stakes. Uh, the world has 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 been affected by all this. Whatever happens in the American empire, of course, has a great effect on, on huge numbers of populations of the world, but on us too. And we're probably more ignorant than other countries about what's going on in our own country and how these elite rule. Um, but it's a good uh, thing. It's a good uh, thing, if I may add, that there are people like you yep. that are are looking into the elites, and and we're finding that that's happening increasingly because they're the guys that call the shots. They're the ones that are operating at the highest level, and they're invisible. They're invisible in the media. They're invisible in academia. Of course, they pour lots of money into all of the colleges, and Rockefeller Foundation has been. But key you know in where that. you'll find them. You'll find them on the boards of directors of these corporations. Yeah. You'll find their rep lawyers and representatives as well. I've been trying to tell people for years how to do power structure research through the board of directors and see the connections. But I find out that most people um, don't want to get involved in, that, in doing that. The foundation trough is very, very long and very, very wide. Yeah. And Amer a lot of American academics, American media people, American politicians are out sipping at the trough. Some of them are taking big gulps these days. Where it, and American democracy is very much suffering as a result. So the right wing is definitely a – who are they revolting against? They're revolting against the Eastern establishment. Not for the right reasons, but that's what they're doing. Uh, and we have to come to grips with who's really in power. When we talk about the Council on Foreign Relations, I had a friend that said to me, who is this central faction of the ruling class that you keep talking about? I said, well, where did you uh, get your research? Where, where have you done your research? Well, I read this article in in um, America, in Foreign Affairs. I said, you're reading them. You're reading their interpretation of the world. Yeah. And this is what goes on in academia, too. Um, I've had friends that were fired from their jobs who were, uh, you know, professors who, for speaking the wrong things, for teaching what they consider to be wrong. They just fire them. And they, so you have brilliant minds walking the streets. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's been particularly tough since the uh, 1970s yeah i think that the, the I, I think that they yeah. win they the way that i see this like nelson rockefeller and his attempt to get into like actual electoral politics didn't actually seem to be a, a, a the wise move for him and for his particular milieu but he he dies you know fairly young <clears throat> and what i see happening is that the rockefeller republicans essentially take over the democratic party and the, the, the progressive elements of the U.S., which were always pretty weak anyway, but connected to the New Deal and those traditions, people like Henry Wallace, people like John and Robert Kennedy, they're exiled from, the, the, from power up to the present day. And you have Nelson Rockefeller hand after Nixon and Ford. I mean, Nixon's whole resignation also seems very, it seems very strange and to be sort of, the, I mean, Nixon always thought 
that it was the same people that killed Kennedy that were behind Watergate. Uh, he would he told his biographer that a guy named uh, I think it was Frank Gannon, but I, I I think that's probably more or less correct. And when the next Democrat gets into the White House, he's the guy who was handpicked by Rockefeller, and then Rockefeller later David Rockefeller and his Trilateral Commission, you know, which is sort of the more international successor or accompaniment to the Council on Foreign Relations after the end of Bretton Woods, and with Rockefeller with Rockefeller and Jimmy Carter, he sabotages him as you document in the book. Admitting the forcing him to admit the Shah into the United States, which leads to the embassy and that whole debacle. But he's also involved in the October surprise scandal. Even the New York Times wrote about this recently, and like two years ago, that more information has come out, more or less confirming what like people like Robert Perry and Gary Sick and Peter Dale Scott were writing about that. But I think the takeaway is that what what you have in the 70s with this, in the 60s you have the assassinations, in the 70s you have Watergate and the fallout of that. And Carter comes in as this neoliberal corporate Democrat, uh, and basically the party after that is never really the same. And I think it's corporate power and money that does this. But today, you basically have the Rockefeller Republicans are the left wing of the American spectrum, and they're called Democrats, versus Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, neoconservatives in the Republicans. And it's it's so it's gotten so much worse. And and. Your, what your book filling this in, a lot of this history, I think is extremely relevant to people. So this is this is what we're stuck with is more like we're not going to have a Nelson Rockefeller figure publicly out there representing them anymore because I think they're smarter. Uh, they have front people now, but it, it's this whole era was like a takeover of or a destroying a destruction of well, any the, democracy that there was in America. Jimmy Carter made the same mistake that JFK did. He appointed Brzezinski, uh, of the, the who was executive director of the Trilateral Commission, yeah. which was founded at David Rockefeller's estate, um, and uh, he uh, and he did the same thing as the Kennedys, and then turned around and said, "Oh my God, what did I do?" And he he was bewildered. Uh, yeah, and you're right. That was the end of. And the rock, rock. Many of the uh, people ended up inside the Democratic Party and the leadership. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm a Democrat, and I don't believe that uh, most Democrats feel this way. I do believe that, however, they have adopted corporate liberalism. They think that all progress has to go through the corporations, and that's death. To the American democracy, the Trilateral Commission is very powerful. But yeah, the Trilateral Commission. Um, David Rockefeller, in his memoir, talks about how uh, Jimmy Carter, how, to his astonishment, Jimmy Carter appointed like ten members of the Trilateral Commission uh, to his cabinet, and then uh, Obama. Uh, no, not just Obama, Clinton. Clinton um, was influenced by the trilateralists, and so was Obama. And so, yes. And you ask the question, uh, you may ask the question, who ultimately was more powerful, uh, Nelson or David? And I, looking at David's legacy, I got to say, um, I think he was, what do you think, Jerry? I think David became, became more powerful of all the Rockefellers through his connections of the Trilateral Commission, the appointments into these presidents, uh, and and 
pursuing a neo-colonial policy for which he has no regrets at all. And by the way, this is in the update to our book, which came, uh, there's an e-book and we have an update. So you can follow uh, more recent events and the Rockefeller influences. Well, um, I really recommend that everybody check this book out. I have the audiobook version also, which is well done. I was really happy to see that they had made that. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great one. It, it's some dense material, but it's so valuable. And uh, there's, it's the information that you put out there is something that can inform your ideas about, about these, these issues, because it ends up being a, I mean, you started out looking into the, you know, this, these missionaries and so on, and then you end up focusing more on this one figure, Nelson Rockefeller, but because of the interlocked nature of, of corporate power, and the, the nature of economic power in the United States, which cannot but be political power, it ends up being a, a kind of a history of the deep state in a sense, or the history of the establishment, whatever you want to call it. So it, it's a really singular, uh, amazing work. And um, so so uh, Gerard Colby, Charlotte Dennett, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure. It was very, very interesting. Oh, it was great. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Mock Orange for providing the music. Nelson Rockefeller is a strange character. Uh, it is a sad commentary on our so-called democracy that a figure so obviously from the pinnacle of the U.S. oligarchy of wealth and power could attain such high offices. It is wild that he could get appointed vice president by President Ford, who himself was never elected. From that position, Nelson presided over the Rockefeller Commission to review CIA scandals in the wake of Watergate. But from the time the CIA was founded, those in charge of running and overseeing covert operations were very much networked into the Rockefeller overworld. This goes beyond any normal understanding of what constitutes a conflict of interest. This is systemic corruption, an imperial system having more in common with a mafia than with a democracy. And that's why we're out here finding the light. So, so, where does all